Our second reading uh, is a group of passages from uh, the Gospel of John and also from the first uh, epistle of John. You can find the addresses there in your bulletin if you are interested. Hear the Word of God. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. The Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him so that you may marvel. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, you are uh, high and beyond us. You are beyond our comprehension. You are bigger than our minds can wrap themselves around. And yet you have come to be with us. You uh, are present here in this room. For many of us, you have shown up in our lives and you have opened our ears and opened our eyes to uh, the mysteries of the gospel. And so we marvel. We are awestruck that you are beyond this world and yet in this world. And we thank you for your revelation of yourself in scripture. We thank you for the prophets who faithfully proclaimed your name those who inscribed it. We thank you for Lord Jesus who came in this world to be the light of the world, to be the Word of God incarnate. We pray that this morning as we spend time thinking about your Word, as we find the shape of our mind and our identity in your Word and not in the words of the world, We pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would accomplish in us individually and as a congregation what it is that you want your word to do. So we thank you for your word and we ask for your help this morning and we pray that uh, what we do here this morning might bring pleasure to your heart. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, 
So, um, I, I have been struggling with this uh, sermon series that I'm doing uh, on the doctrine of creation. Um, I'm struggling because the topic is so important to me, uh, and I want to do right by it, uh, and yet it is so um, challenging. And it is uh, so difficult for us, particularly those of us who are not trained as philosophers. The last three sermons that I've done have been uh, really the kind of conversations that you would have in an undergraduate philosophy class. Uh, and, and, and that is very challenging. Um, those of you who know me know that I am trained as a philosopher. Uh, and I spent many years teaching philosophy uh, in a Catholic school. Um, I was attracted to philosophy as an undergraduate, uh, partly because of my grounding in the Christian faith. Um, I grew up uh, in a fundamentalist, Bible-believing family. We knew that the Bible was the Word of God. We trusted God. We believed that there were things that were true and other things that were not true. And uh, so implanted in my heart, by my family training was an extremely high regard for the truth and a desire to know the truth. To not be satisfied with easy answers. To not be willing to have competing theories and conflicting theories both held as though they were equally valuable. One of the things that philosophy does is try to make sense out of Everything. It seems kind of crazy to say it, but philosophy is an attempt to make a theory of everything. In fact, all great philosophies are attempts to have a unified, single theory about everything that's possible, everything that's knowable. The quality or the value of a theory is judged in two ways. Number one... A theory is a good theory if it is internally self-consistent. Maybe you've met somebody who says one thing on Monday and another thing on Tuesday. That person is inconsistent and you would say something's wrong there. So for a theory to be good, all of its parts must agree with all of the other parts. That's one aspect of a high quality theory. And a second aspect is, is that uh, a theory is a better theory if it explains more of the world, if it explains more of the data. All right? You could have a small theory that explains, you know, how things happen over here, but a better theory would be a theory that explains larger and more things. In the late 19th and early 20th century, physicists, uh, finally developed a single theory that explained three phenomena that used to have separate theories. The phenomena of light, the phenomena of electricity, and the phenomena of magnetism. Okay, so prior, prior to the late 19th century, there were three separate little local theories that explained each of these very interesting phenomena. And 
in the late 19th and early 20th century, physicists began to figure out, oh, you know, in fact, all of these things are related, and there's a more fundamental, a more basic theory that explains all of those three things. All right? Now, the puzzle was is that that theory still left out gravity, which has many aspects that the math the math is related to how those other uh, forces operate. And so the scientists and the scientific community was satisfied by this progress that we now have one theory that explains more phenomena, but there was still this phenomenon uh, called magnet uh, that was called gravity that was left out. Throughout the 20th century, there was the development of what is now called the standard model. And the standard model explains electromagnetism, which was all those three things that were combined in the late 19th century, along with what's called the weak nuclear force and the strong nuclear force. Okay, So one theory explaining more data... Uh, and that's a better theory than the earlier theory because the earlier theory could not account for the strong and the weak nuclear force. But now we've got one theory that accounts for all. It accounts for light, electricity, magnetism, strong force, weak force. Better theory. Ah, but man, gravity still hasn't been included yet. Okay, so the physicists haven't closed up shop. They're still working on this. They're still trying to figure this out. They're still trying to develop a theory uh, that will account for everything. The goal in contemporary physics is something called the toe, the theory of everything. There is this drive, this desire to create one unified theory that is able to account for all of the aspects of the physical universe. Okay, so I think it's important to understand this is a, a general drive of the human mind of reason to have a good theory that is both internally consistent and covers a wider and wider territory. Currently, there are two competing theories that have not been uh, resolved uh, one is general relativity, which was the work of Albert Einstein in the early part of the 20th century. And then the other is quantum mechanics, which begins a little bit later. General relativity does a very good job with gravity and things operating at a large scale. Planets, solar systems. Quantum mechanics doesn't deal with gravity but does a really good job of dealing with things at a small scale. There is no uh, unifying theory between these two basic models yet. It's being worked out. People are producing string theory and multidimensional theories. But the instinct here, the drive here, is to move to a theory of everything. Okay? Now, I think this is the correct instinct. And I think you as uh, rational people should be thinking in terms of a theory that explains all of the phenomena in your life, um, all of the phenomena in your life. Now, let me say this. If the physicists tomorrow or on Thursday finally get their toe, their theory of everything, if they uh, have a theory that resolves the differences between relativity and quantum mechanics, 
there is still a huge part of human experience that they don't touch. They call it the theory of everything, but in fact they've left out the things that are most important to me. And these are things that are related to what we call value. Things that we talk about with ought statements and should statements. Even if I know how all of the particles in the world operate, I still don't know. That doesn't tell me how should I treat my child. How should I behave toward my neighbor? If I understand how all of the particles of physics move, it still doesn't answer the question, should I get out of my house and go to church this Sunday morning? I would argue that this second set of questions is actually more interesting and more fundamental and more important than the questions of physics. Knowing the good is more interesting, important, and fundamental than knowing how the particles move. Okay, The ought and the should questions are questions that have to do with human freedom, with human value, with human choice, and with human worth. And it's a different order of questions. The electron... And doing what it does, it used to orbit the nucleus when I was a kid, but now now it's like a cloud, I guess. They have a different theory about it. Whatever it does, whatever the electron is doing this morning, that electron is doing it in a determined way, according to natural law. It's not free. It's not choosing what it can do. It can't do other than what it's doing. The planets don't choose what orbits they're going to move in. They are determined by the laws of gravity. Alright? When the natural sciences finish their work, which I don't ever think they will, but were they to, they would have an explanation of how every physical event in the universe happens... But they would not have a theory that covers the ought and the should. What should happen? What ought happen? What should I do? It will not be a theory of everything. It will actually be a theory of some things. And I want us to recognize this because I've been talking about scientism, which is a contemporary mythology that the natural sciences have an answer to all questions. They have an answer to many questions. A lot of questions. They tell us many things. And the natural sciences should be honored and explored for that reason. But they do not answer all questions. The natural sciences do not have answers to ought and should questions. In this public debate that has been going on uh, during this uh, COVID crisis, there have been some people who have stood up and said, we need to follow the science. As if the sciences could tell us what we ought to do and what we should do. And let me just 
be as blunt as I can. It can't. Our arguments regarding COVID are not really scientific at this point. We understand how the germ theory of disease, we understand how diseases spread. The questions that we're asking now are moral questions and ethical questions. What are my obligations to my neighbors? Okay, that's a COVID policy question. It's not a scientific question. What individual rights of mine should be honored and respected? That's not a scientific question. It's an ethical question. What is the relative value of a longer life versus a life without human fellowship? That's not a scientific question. It's an ethical question. It's a value question. Okay? And they are important questions. And so, if, I think we, well, I'm very disappointed by people who have used language like follow the science because the implication is, is that the other person is being non-scientific. Science has its domain. Understand its domain and understand what lies outside of its domain. Now, maybe there are some people who are unscientific. No one in this room is that. Okay, we're all educated people. We know how germs work. Anyone who thinks that the natural sciences or things like medicine or epidemiology can answer ethical questions fails to understand what those questions really are. Okay? So I want to create this boundary, first of all, between value questions and questions of physics or of particles or of forces uh, in the universe. Every theory that is worth its weight is an attempt to explain as much as possible in as consistent a way as possible. The natural sciences are a very powerful system of explanation, but there are other systems of explanation that uh, engage uh, probably what we would call the more human side of things, the, uh, the side of freedom, for example. We have theories of economics and we have theories of psychology. Um, and... My purpose in this series of sermons has been to reclaim for us a biblical view that's a grand view. A theory of everything from the biblical point of view. One of the things that has happened to us as Christians is is that over time we have in fact lost the biblical view of fundamental things, and we've adopted an atheistic worldview. And, and, we're, and, and we're living in a, in a kind of hybrid reality. And then we wonder why we're having conflicts in our faith. Well, it's because you don't have a consistent theory. And I want to encourage us to have a good theory. I want you to be good philosophers. I want you to have a theory that's very large, that embraces all kind of phenomena, including the physical phenomena, but also the phenomena that have to do with human freedom, ethical phenomena. And I want it to be consistent internally. 
And I think what we find in Scripture is precisely that. I think we have undersold the power of the Bible. And now I'm going to make a book recommendation. So this little book here, it's called Thinking Through Creation. Christopher Watkins is the author. This book was uh, uh, brought to my attention by uh, David Hamalian. He had read it. He gave it to me. It rattled around on my desk for a long time, and I finally read it. And it knocked my socks off. Now let me tell you a little bit about this guy. David, uh, or Christopher Watkins is a Cambridge trained philosopher. He is a genuine top shelf philosopher. He also happens to be a Christian and a very good text scholar. And he, he, most of his work that he does, uh, is actually in French 20th century philosophy, deconstruction, and stuff like this. Uh, but he was interested in worldviews and in the biblical worldview. And he started a very large project in, in just working through Scripture to look at the biblical worldview. Turned out it was like ended up being way too big, so he pared it down. He said, well, let me just give you the first little chunk, which is this book here. I bought five copies. If you want one, I will give you one. This is an important book, okay? Now, this is written at the level um, of for like an undergraduate philosophy student. Okay, this is not a devotional book. Okay, this is a philosophical book. It will it will be challenging to you, uh, but it I can say that as a as a philosophical work, uh, it's legitimate and first class. As a biblical work, it's also legitimate and first class. It's actually a very unusual book in this regard. So I'm, I've got copies here, and uh, I'm going to offer that to you. Uh, this sermon series uh, is sort of following through uh, the, the work that uh, Watkins has done in his book, part of the structure. Now, when I started this uh, series, the first thing I talked about was what was God doing before creation? And we're gonna, we're gonna eventually get to Genesis 1 and, and 2. We're gonna talk about the days of creation and we're gonna talk about dinosaurs and all of that stuff. But I wanted us to think about what does the Bible say about what God was doing before creation? Because it's a really foundational thing because who God is determines what this world is. And because we're made in the image of God, it's going to determine who we are. So it's important to think about what God is doing before creation. And a few things, there was actually a whole bunch of things that the Bible says about what God was doing before creation. But to sum them up is is that God in the time before creation was always in a loving relationship. God was never alone. Okay? And that relationship was always a loving uh, relationship. And God, during that time, was also making decisions about the future of his creation. We also uh, came to realize that God always was a person. We can think about what it means to be a person. I think we need to struggle with that idea of what it means to be a person. But before there were chemicals, before there was physics, there were people. Okay? Part of, part of the mythology of scientism is that human personhood is an emergent quality that rises out of our chemicals through some kind of magic. 
Okay, you've arranged the chemicals in that sack of your skin in the right way, and then presto, you have a soul or a person or a spirit. What we see in Scripture is that there are persons before there's a world. There are persons before there are chemicals. And I would argue that your personhood precedes your chemical nature. There are ethical consequences for this. Your personhood existed before you came to term and were born. When you were in your mother's womb, you were who you are, which is why as Christians we defend those people who were waiting to be born. They're still people. You may not have seen their face yet. Well, except if you had the courage to have a sonogram. They're people. And that personhood is independent of those chemicals that are stewing in the mother's womb. Secondly, um, because we see that God is personal and not chemical, he's a person who has who, who is not a body, um, uh, yeah, well, I just wanted to say that that was before the physical universe. The third thing that we talked about uh, was that God is both transcendent, like, in some sense, God is like so beyond that we can't even wrap our minds around him. He's just like so wonderful and so other. I mean, he's not in this universe. Everything else that I know in this world is in this universe. Even when I say it, everything that I know in this world, I look around me. This is how I know stuff. Well, guess what? There's this something that I know that's not even in this world. It's not in this solar system. It's not in this galaxy. It's not in the physical universe. And so God is transcendent. It's mind-blowing. There are no adjectives that are big enough to wrap our mind around God. And we need to be respectful of that distance, that gulf between us. We need to be careful to not say that my language for God exhausts who God is or that I can comprehend God. And yet at the same time, God is close. He's right here. Alright, so there's this weird, like, he's totally beyond, but he's also like right next door to us. And then we talked about how revelation was the bridge between those two things. Okay, revelation is a kind of knowledge. Some of your knowledge comes from your senses. Okay, what color is my jacket? My jacket is red. You know that because you open your eyes and your senses tell you. Some knowledge we know because of the operation of human reason alone. If you want to do a mathematical calculation, you can close your eyes. You don't need your eyes to do a mathematical calculation. Your brain can figure it out. Sense knowledge, pure reason. But there are some things that we know by revelation. All right? God chooses to make something known to us that we couldn't know in another way. Now, let me give you an example of Revelation. You, all of you know what color my... Uh, maybe there's some colorblind people in here who don't... Oh, John, John, what color is my jacket? It's brown. Okay. All right. So those, who are, those of you who are relativists would say, well, you know, John's truth is as true as the other truth. I'm not a relativist. This is a red jacket. John, you are mistaken. Okay. All right. There are some things that you know about me through your senses. There are some things, however, that you can't know unless I reveal them to you. Who here knows the name of the movie 
that my wife and I attended on our first date. We didn't see any of it. But I can reveal it to you. It was called, it was the handmaiden's tale. Okay? So that, I just, I just made a revelation. Alright? Now, one of the mistakes about revelation is that people think that revelation is anti-reason. Revelation is not anti-reason. The revelation of the Bible is reasonable. It's simply information that you could not have gotten by yourself. Me telling you that I went to see The Handmaiden's Tale, that's not irrational or anti-reason. You just didn't know it. There's no way that you could have figured it out. But I can tell it to you, and then you're like, oh, okay, now I know it. All right, so the revelation of the Bible, when God reveals who He is, it's not that it's beyond reason. It's just beyond what we happen to know. All right? I want to be, I want to warn, because there are people who will accuse people of faith of being irrational or unreasonable. Your faith is perfectly reasonable. Your faith actually is a grand unified theory of everything that makes sense of many things. C.S. Lewis, I think, puts it really nicely. C.S. Lewis says, I hope I can get this quote right. C.S. Lewis says, Christianity, I believe in Christianity in the same way I believe in the sun, not because I see the sun, not because I look, not only because I look and see the sun, but because by the sun I see everything else. Okay, Christianity is a grand unified theory that makes sense of huge swaths of human experience and of the physical universe. Okay? And it's consistent, it's internally consistent, it matches the data, it's extremely powerful. And it's true, it's God's truth. Okay? Um, two errors in the whole transcendent imminent thing that we did not talk about last week. Um, are the error of deism. Okay, so there are people who are called deists. Deists believe that there is a God, but that God is so beyond and so out of this world that we don't really know anything about Him. And He probably doesn't even care about us. Okay? And that would be an error. Okay? Because what we see revealed in Scripture is that, yeah, God is beyond, but God is also close. God is beyond, but God is also involved. So we want to avoid the error of deism, which is a kind of impersonal God who's just sort of out there someplace. Um, maybe like the force, you know, in Star Wars theology. God is not the force. All right, God is a person. Now, he's forceful. He's got power. But he's a person. That's one error. The other error is uh, what's called pantheism. Pantheism uh, is a pagan error, and it's it's very popular today. Uh, about 12% of my Facebook feed is pantheistic today. Um, pantheism says that God is in everything. He's in nature. Okay? Maybe you've gotten some Facebook posts from friends of yours who say, you know, oh, oh I was driving to work today, and I stopped at... Uh, Dunkin' Donuts and got my coffee and it spilled on my lap. 
what is the universe trying to say to me? That's pantheism. Let me give you a little clue. The universe isn't trying to say anything to you. Okay, the universe is just operating by natural law. Now, God might be trying to say something to you, all right, but the universe isn't. Okay, God is not the universe. That's the error uh, of pantheism. What we see in the Bible is that God is absolute. He's absolutely beyond, but he's also personal. And for reasons that uh, all we can do is wonder at, he also wants to make himself known to us. It's very interesting because in the other religions of the world, um, in, um, in the other pagan religions of the world, this is very interesting. I'm looking at my notes and I, I think, I don't think I have my notes here. I think that's last week's notes. Um, the, the other religions of the world, uh, the gods aren't necessarily interested in people. And what you see in the biblical revelation is, is that God is intensely uh, interested uh, in people. So what I want to talk about today, and, and I'm going to keep hitting those points as we go along, uh, because I want them to sink into your mind, because here's what's happening. You are imbibing the world's worldview. In some cases, it's openly hostile and strategically planned out hostile. If you, if you think that the movie industry or the television industry is neutral on your Christian faith, you're very naive. Okay? There is a plan. There are strategy meetings about how to disabuse you of a biblical worldview. All right? We can talk about that another time, but I have, I have empirical data to demonstrate that. Okay, but I want to talk. So what I'm saying is that you're exposed to the world 24/7. You're watching Netflix. Okay, you're surfing the web, and you're moving in this stew of anti-biblical view. And so, like every once in a while, maybe we surface and we read the Bible again. And I don't know that we're reading enough to be an antidote to the amount of other influences. If you got the world telling you 24-7, this is who you are, 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 and the Bible says, no, in fact, you're this, who are you going to believe? Statistically speaking, you're going to believe the world. Okay, Which is why, as Christians, we need to govern what kind of input we allow. We need to be discerning. Alright? The Apostle Paul knew the ancient Greek poets and could cite them. But my guess is he spent more time studying the Torah than he spent studying the Greek, than the Greeks. The last point I want to make today before I infuriate the band is this. <laughs> I want to talk about the power of God. And I want to talk about the love of God. One of the things that should strike you as odd, and I hope it seems strange to you, is that the God of the universe, who is all-powerful, who can do whatever He wants, who doesn't have to answer to anyone, 
turns out to be loving. Now, if you gave me that power, if you made me all-powerful, make me a billionaire, make me the unchallenged tyrant of the Russian Republic... Okay? Think about it. There are a few people who've got extreme power. I would be a nasty dude. I could get away with whatever I wanted to get away with. I would do whatever I wanted to do, and you don't want to know what that is. Okay? Because my heart is corrupt. I would not be a loving person. I would be a controlling person. I would tell you all, because I know what you should be doing. Okay, if you were to make me the dictator, I would tell you exactly what you need to be doing. All right, it would be really bad because I would be self serving. What we see in scripture is that God is all powerful, but at the same time, He's also loving. I hope that blows your mind. Let's take a look at the passages that we read. I'm going to read uh, John uh, 3. 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Now, one of the problems with Hollywood, you know, which of course is home base for Satan, is, is that love has been equated with erotic, with erotic sex. Alright? I don't know where that, and that notion is, is a relatively new notion that love means sex. But what you notice here is that God's, and so anytime somebody uses the word love, you need to ask the question, well, what do you really mean? The Father loves the Son and has given all things to Him. Well, what you see here is, is that, that the character of love is that it's giving. The next one we read, the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. So love is giving, God lo- godly love is giving love, godly love is also transparent and honest. Okay, it's not hidden. Okay, God, God doesn't hide himself from his son, but he shows himself to his son. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. So the father loves Jesus and Jesus loves us. And so what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus gives us. The father gives to Jesus and Jesus gives to us. And then finally, love makes makes us one. In I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one. One of the fundamental characteristics of the church is that we're a unity. Well, we don't do so great on this. But one of the consequences of Christian love is, is that we will be unified. Christian love is giving. Christian love is transparent. It's honest. And Christian love produces unity. Now, the reason that we're talking about who God is so much is because ultimately that's going to give us the answer to the question of who it is that we are. All right, that's enough for today. Let me um, lead you through the Heidelberg Catechism. You have it there in your bulletin.